G'day everyone, my name is Stephen and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. For those of you who don't know, the Bamboo History Podcast is a podcast on Chinese and East Asian history. If you like this type of content, please subscribe to my podcast right now and follow my Instagram as well, at Bamboo History Podcast. Today's episode will be different because we have a guest who will be joining our show today. He's my mate Davo. We've known each other for 10 years now. He's passionate about Chinese history just as much as I am. And yeah, he's coming onto the show to talk about the development of Malaysian Chinese identity throughout history. I'd like to say though, Davo isn't a Malaysian Chinese person, but he's passionate about this topic and he wanted to talk about it based on what he knows as well as what he's researched. In my opinion, the whole point about history is to create discussions and forums where people can discuss historical topics of interest, because, through discussion, this is how we spread knowledge. So yeah, that's why I was keen on having Davo on the show. I also encourage everyone to comment on our discussion as well, as it will be great to hear your thoughts on the development of Malaysian Chinese identity, especially if you are Malaysian Chinese. Okay, without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. The audio you're about to hear with my interview with Davo was recorded on Zoom, so the quality may not be as good as my usual episodes where I've recorded off a mic, so please bear that in mind. Alright, so welcome to the Bamboo History Podcast, everyone. Today I've got my good friend Davo. G'day. Yeah, how's it going? Yeah, good, man. How are you, Steve? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It's It's been a while, hey? It's been too long. Uh, for those of you who may know, Davo and I actually, we attempted a podcast together during the COVID lockdown. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh my God, yeah. That's, that's, that, that, was a, that was a while ago. That yeah. was good fun. Do you want to tell people what the, uh, the name of that podcast was called? Yeah, sure. So that podcast was called... The Y Factor podcast. Yeah. Y being the, the letter Y of the alphabet. Yeah, like Y, y as in... yellow. Y-M-C-A-Y. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, <laughs> I remember we uh, we did a few episodes on that, just talking about the, the whys in life. <laughs> yeah, like like why, why do Japanese eat um, uh, salmon sashimi? Yeah, and why uh, you're supposed to wash your hands and not just sanitize them. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, why? Why, Steven? Why? <laughs> Wrong podcast, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, forgot about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the Bamboo History Podcast, yeah, uh, where we're going to talk about Chinese and East Asian history, as you will know, because, and thank you for listening to my podcast episodes, even though I forced you to, maybe. <laughs> oh, I didn't mind listening to some of them. Yeah. <laughs> sure about that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, well, today we've got a good friend Davo on is because Davo really wants to talk about a particular subject in Chinese history. And I think it's very interesting as well. So the topic is the development of Malaysian Chinese identity. And it was something that you're pretty keen to talk about, even though, you know, you're not Malaysian Chinese, but you know, no one has to... No one has to take that in consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people who, who call themselves Sinologists 
okay, uh, academics of China, China and Chinese history, they're white people. Yeah, they aren't even Chinese as well. So, you know. Ah, uh, so yeah. Well, yes, I want to talk about this topic because Malaysian Chinese uh, identity and history and culture is something that I've always been very interested in. Yeah. Malaysia is one of the places in the world where there is a probably the strongest preservation of uh, Chinese culture, language, and traditions outside of Greater China. Also, not only that, um, there is a big diasporic Malaysian Chinese community in other countries, in other Western countries like Australia and New Zealand, and those uh, that that community has contributed a lot to Chinese culture as a whole as well. Yeah, like uh, or Michelle Yeoh. Is a very famous Malaysian Chinese actress. Yes. She recently won an Oscar. She won an Oscar. Yeah. 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 Everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. It was a really great film. Yeah. And she's very famous uh, across some of the Chinese sphere. Absolutely. And she is from Ipoh, uh, which is uh, the capital of Perak State in Malaysia. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Um, and same as you, I've been curious about, I guess, how the Malaysian Chinese came to be and where they came from and when they came from. Mm. And obviously, you being interested in this topic, you did some digging yourself, right? So, you're yeah, able to sort of I've tell us where they came from, when they came from, right? To us and all the other bamboo historians out there. Absolutely. I've say I've done quite a bit of reading into the into the subject. I recently travelled um, around Malaysia as well um, to Kuala Lumpur, Ipoh and Penang. And I've met a lot of locals, chatted with them, visited yeah. a lot of the museums. Um yeah, tried a lot of the foods uh, and got to understand, yeah, a lot about uh, how they came to, how they, they could, the uh, Chinese community came to develop into what it is today. Yeah. Is that, the, is that the only reason why you think you're a legitimate guy to talk about Malaysian Chinese history? Because you went to Malaysia for a oh. week. <laughs> I would say, I would say that, that, um, that gives me a strong leg, but um, I would say someone else who's been to Malaysia for two weeks might do a better job than me. Oh, Okay. It's not me, by the way. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 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 Have you been to Malaysia? Yeah, I have. I went for I went for a few days, but I only call Wumpa. Okay, so yeah. I'm more qualified on the subject then. Okay. Sorry, David. Alright, you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just got schooled. <laughs> yep. Alright, sorry, yeah, keep going. So I guess what what was like the earliest the earliest evidence of Chinese people coming into Malaysia? Well, the earliest evidence of um, Chinese migration happened in between the 15th to the second 16th century. Now, um, from what I've read about and what I've spoken to people about in Malaysia, um, basically a lot of those were people from the southern province of China, specifically Fujian province. And a lot of them came to the Nanyang region, and that's the Chinese term for Southeast, Southeast Asia, Asia yep. specifically um, what is modern-day Malaysia, uh, Singapore, and Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came in search of better economic opportunities because those communities in southern China, they were quite impoverished at the time. And they they saw that there were opportunities for them to uh, either work as laborers or to start businesses over there. And that would have been what sort of time period? Um, so that would have been in the the earliest traces were were in the sixteen hundreds, I believe. 
but I think the greater num the greatest numbers of Malaysian Chinese they sort of came over uh during the eighteen hundreds. That was the start of the biggest number of migrants. Yeah, and as you said, it was due to you know poor economic conditions back in China at the time. And as I've also covered in my previous episodes, uh, insurgency in civil wars like the Taiping Rebellion as well, which drew a lot of the Hakka people away from China mm. to other parts of the world. Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, and a lot of the people were obviously from southern China that were probably the most economically deprived at, around that period of time within uh, China. And so the ones, the earliest uh, Chinese migrants um, that came over, they were mostly male. Yeah. Uh, they, they were actually exclusively male at the time from oh. Fujian province. And they went over to Nan, the Nanyan region. And because the males went over, because, you know, I guess it was uncharted territories, it was quite harsh, it was men who went there. And obviously, they wanted to start families sometime. And what they did was, they ended up marrying local women, and the locals in Malaysia are the Malay people. That's an ethnic group in in Malaysia, the majority ethnic group in in modern-day Malaysia. I'm assuming... Because the children were half Malay and half Chinese, did they form, from my knowledge, they formed almost like a culture of their own. It developed into their own sort of culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. So naturally, it was a fusion of two cultures. And what this uh, resulted in was the creation of a group called the Peranakans. Would you be able to spell that for our listeners who want to look this up? Of course. So Peranakan is spelled P E R A N A. K-A-N-S. Yeah, Peranakans. Yeah, pl- plural. That's the plural form. Yes, yeah. yes. And essentially, um, the word Peranakan, just in, in modern day Malay parlance, it refers to people who are hybrid between Chinese and local Malays. Oh, um, okay. So is that in, that's what it means in the local Malay language? Is that what it means? Or? So uh, what it means, it, it can also, it has multiple... Um, I guess, connotations. Uh, so it doesn't specify any ethnicity per se. It means kind of like a hybrid or crossbreed. So that's basically what it means. Like a cro- like a hybrid. Oh, right. Like a child, like an offspring of a hybrid. Yeah, okay. Mm. And when that Peranakan culture and ethnic identity developed, uh, what were some interesting things about them? Things that indicated and showed the influence of both cultures? Yeah, so what's interesting about the Peranakans is that at, at the time, there was no requirement for a couple, for a, a, a non-Malay Muslim male who married a Malay Muslim girl to convert to Islam. And right currently in Malaysia, there is that requirement. Oh, okay. um, for, a non, for a non-Muslim to marry a Muslim, they have to convert. Yeah. So because there was no such restriction at the time, um, they were able to bring in multiple, uh, they were able to bring in both the Chinese and the Malay cultural aspects into this hybrid, uh, I guess, family. Um, and so what, what some of the, the uniqueness over there is that they created their own uh, food and their own culture. Uh, so for instance, um, women, they didn't wear traditional Chinese chipao. They wore the kebaya, which is a garment for women in the Malay Peninsula and also the Indonesian archipelago. 
uh, and they mo- they made some modifications to it, I guess, to add a little bit more Chinese elements to it. It's, it was the Peranakan kebaya is a bit more form fitting compared to the Indonesian and Malaysian one, and also their cooking was quite unique. I'm sure all of you guys have at least heard of what a laksa is, right? It's the noodle with the creamy soup sort of dish, isn't it? Yeah, creamy <laughs> soup. Yeah, a bit spicy, perhaps. Yeah, that was a bad description. You can probably do better. You can probably, <laughs> do, be- you can probably yeah. do better than me, David. Oh, look, I'm, I'm. I don't think I'm the 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 best descriptor of food. Um, but I would say, uh, yeah, creamy soup, um, bit of chili in it, um, bit of coconut milk, and often got chicken and and uh, vermicelli noodles in it, and and actual noodles as well. So what's interesting is that the migrants from, that the Peranakans, uh, they were mostly descended from men from Fujian province in China. And people from Fujian province are known, not known to eat spicy food. They're known to eat food with mellow flavors. And what's interesting is that uh, after they were in Malaysia and, you know, married Malay women and adopted some Malay culinary ingredients, they started eating more and more spicy foods. And laksa is a good example of that. And um, their, their ancestors would not have eaten that. And there's a lot of ingredients that, um, I guess, Malay Chinese use, such as sambal and curries and chicken curries that they would cook, uh, which, yeah, wouldn't exist in China. Yeah, in- I've, never heard of, I've never heard of those things at all when you talk about Chinese cuisine these days. No, no, they wouldn't know what it is. So that was a development, uh, a native development. Um, they also created this dessert called kue, uh, which is like um, it's like a gelatin, like a gelatin kind of dessert that um, it's co- colorful, got lots of colors. Base color is green. Um, they're like sweets, and they're like jelly-like sweets, cake, sweet cake-like things. Kue, kue. Or, or ke in Spanish. Kue. Sorry, it just sounded very similar to <laughs> in Spanish. <laughs> So, yeah. so how, how do you spell kue? Uh, K-U-I-H or K-U-E-H, one or oh. the other. I'll look that up. I've never heard of that before. That's mm. why. Yeah. yeah so um, that's very, that is uh, quintessentially a Peranakan. Uh, or as they would call it, like a, the other word for Peranakan is Nyonya Baba. What does Nyonya Baba mean? Uh, Nyonya Baba means, Nyonya means the Peranakan uh, woman. And Baba is means the Peranakan man. Oh, I see. And what that refers to is basically it's another word for for Peranakans. So with Peranakan culture, it's evident that it's from the fusion of Malay and Chinese cultures for the past century. And you've talked about Kabaya and the, the Laksa, both which are examples of that. In terms of Malaysian Chinese in general, are there sort of other influences as well besides from the local malay um, population or how has their identity developed over time separate to the peranakans yeah so i i suppose um what you could say uh what happened was that obviously they went over to to the malayan peninsula in you know from the 16th uh 16th 17th century onwards now, coinciding with that was the commencement of British rule in Malaya. And after the British um, started colonizing um, Malaya, uh, what 
happened was that the British sort of divided the country into classes, racial classes, in fact, um, with the British at the very top, the Malays at the very bottom, and the Chinese almost being a some, some sort of like a middleman, if you will. Yeah. And the Chinese were often, because of that, they were in merchant and business roles or workers. And from that, um, the Peranakan group, they saw themselves as quite, they quite admired British culture and they quite admired British practices because they were the, the colonial rulers and that they were quite successful in obviously establishing a colonial empire. And so what a lot of the Peranakans actually started doing was they started trying to speak English as a first language. English? Correct. Oh, yes. Okay. So what happened was that um, many Peranakans ran companies and they served as an intermediary between the British colonial officials and locals. Yeah. And, um, you know, to be able to develop relations with the colonial officials, they needed to know English. And I guess that and the admiration of the British, um, that encouraged a lot of the Peranakans to send their kids to English language schools. And then eventually their descendants, they spoke English more and more to the extent where English almost became like a first language for some Peranakans rather than Chinese. And I suppose they adopted Western practices and they became known as the King's Chinese. So if they spoke English better and better than then my assumption is as their English got better, their Chinese and Malay skills would have gotten worse as the generations went on. Peranakans? Uh, yes, I would say for many that was the case. Uh, for instance, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the former Prime Minister and founder of Singapore, uh, he was born into an English-speaking family. He couldn't speak any Chinese. Really? I thought he could. He learned Chinese later in life. Oh, okay. He learned Chinese and Malay later in life. But his first language is always English, and um, that's his 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 mum uh, was um, yeah as Peranakan and his dad as well. And what that meant was um, yeah they was they wanted to be as close to the British as they could, sending their kids to British institutions in the UK to study at universities there and then come back and then run businesses in Malaya. Yeah. So yes, that group was incredibly Westernized. Now, what's interesting is after uh, Malaysia became independent, then obviously, you know, it, uh, Malay became the official language. And so these days, the descendants of Peranakans, um, they often know, they would know Malay, for sure, because it's a national language. And also, I would say that even though most of them spoke English, they would still know Chinese dialects. They wouldn't speak it as often as English, but they would still know Chinese dialects like Hokkien and perhaps Teochew and Cantonese as well. So it's actually quite interesting, and maybe as us as well, being a second generation of immigrants, it kind of varies between the children of immigrants that some may be more inclined to accept Western culture or the culture of the country that they've adopted mm -hmm. versus the culture of where they came from. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very interesting to listen and learn that the Peranakans adopted Western culture a lot more than the perhaps the other Chinese Malaysians. And I think you told me this just a while ago. There's actually a lot of Chinese Malaysians who've really zealously tried to preserve their culture from their homeland. And they've done a lot of things to, to keep the culture of their ancestors alive in contrast with the Peranakans who've probably tried to adopt that more westernized approach. So I was really curious, like, 
for the Chinese relations who tried to preserve the, their Chinese culture? How did they do that? And how can we see that today? Yeah, so um, that's interesting. And what I found particularly unique about Malaysia and its history of Chinese migration is that there were numerous waves of Chinese migration. Now, we were talking predominantly about the Peranakans, and they were the first generation of Chinese migrants and their subsequent descendants. So what was, um, what I, um, what allowed them to become wealthy and, um, I guess, uh, influential was the fact that they ran companies and served as, you know, intermediaries with the British and the locals. Um, a lot of them became very, very affluent. And you can see that if you go to Penang, they have a, there are a lot of straits Chinese architecture buildings and in those buildings. And then specifically, in, for instance, the Peranakan Museum, there are so many examples of opulent Chinese uh, ceramics, paintings, furniture, all that is astounding. Uh, sorry, at Straits Chinese, is that Peranic? Is that another name for Peranicans or is that different? Uh, yes, that's a general name for, I guess, Chinese from Malaysia and yeah, the, the Malayan Peninsula. Yeah, but it can, it can refer to other um, Ch- Chinese that are not Peranicans. But when we talk about Straits Chinese architecture, Straits Chinese uh, furniture or porcelain usually refers to Pranikan. Gotcha. So they became very, very wealthy. And part of their wealth involved running companies. And some of the, obviously, the activities in these companies, they required laborers and people to work in those companies. And um, in the 19th, in the 19th century, uh, what happened was that tin mines were discovered in the state of Perak, in Ipoh, in Taiping, and in several other places. And tin was a very lucrative resource back then. And the Chinese in uh, the Peranakans, some, some of them ran those companies, and they needed laborers. And what they did was they were my uh, people in China um, that were obviously in need of money and work uh, they would come over to, to work, uh, in laboring jobs. And, um, Parax in Ipo, the city in Parax state, which we, um, mentioned was Michelle Yeo's Michelle hometown. hometown. Yep. Yes, that's right. That was settled by Cantonese migrants from China who came to work on the tin mines. The people of Ipo, many of them, are descended from those tin mine workers. And they speak Cantonese there. They don't speak Penang. Oh, they don't speak Hokkien, which they do in Penang. And that's very interesting because in different cities in Malaysia, there is a predominant Chinese dialect, which is different from other cities. And I've actually read that, you know, the capital city of Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, is predominantly Cantonese Chinese migrants for exactly the same reason, because that city started as a a tin mine settlement. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, I would say that a lot of the Cantonese that came over, they were often, but not exclusively, um, working on labouring projects in the Malay Peninsula. And um, what what that resulted in was, I guess, uh, interestingly, different views of contrasting perceptions of each Chinese groups, the Hokkien's, especially the Peranakans, um, they saw them. They saw themselves as as better than the than the Cantonese labouring Chinese that came later on, because they were more affluent and they spoke English. And um, 
what's interesting for those communities that came later on is that because they were they were uh, I guess less exposed to an environment where they had to um, westernize they a lot of them kept Chinese practices and passed them on from generation to generation and so even though Cantonese is not a language that is taught in schools for instance many many of the descendants of Cantonese migrants uh, can still speak Cantonese today oh really yeah and so you did mention that there were different groups that were based in different cities in Malaysia. So with Penang, it was the, the Hokkien. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's right. And then with cities like Perak, uh, Kuala Lumpur, which started off as tin mines, it will be Cantonese, and they tried to preserve that culture. Yeah, uh, yeah. So at the time, there was no national language in China until the Republic of China took over uh, and established Mandarin as, as the official language. And so because of that, the, the method of communication has always been in the ancestral dialect of that migrant community. I guess what's interesting is obviously some people moved throughout different cities. You know, some people from Penang would have gone to KL. Some people from Ipo would have gone over to um, gone over to Penang. And then you also get other migrants like Hainanese people who've gone to who've gone to KL and, and Singapore as well. A lot of these amount of Hainanese went over to Singapore and also to Penang and then you also get people from Teochew who go to those places too and so interestingly like in a place like Penang you can get people who can speak uh, and understand multiple Chinese dialects um, because they, they might have a neighbor who is Hokkien a neighbor who is who is Teochew and then yeah you get people who can understand multiple different Chinese dialects not necessarily speak it to a full fluent level but they can understand and at least communicate to some degree multiple Chinese dialects, which not the nice. case in many parts of China itself. Yeah, I find that fascinating how in Malaysia you can have a person that can literally speak Malay, if you're Peranakan, really good English, and then possibly Hokkien, Cantonese, Hainanese, all at the same time. So you'd, you'd know five languages. Yeah, absolutely. And that's incredibly unique. Um, it's, not, it's not uncommon. If you beat a Malaysian Chinese person, let's say, um, on your travels in Malaysia or in a, in a Western country, for them to speak at least four languages. And what's also interesting is that for the majority of Malaysian Chinese, they can speak, they can, I'd say almost all Malaysian Chinese can speak English today as well, because basically the British colonial administration uh, ran uh, schools that were, you know, English medium schools. And if you were sent there, obviously, you'd be taught in English. And after that, after Malaysia gained independence, English was still is still used as a language of business, a language of commerce, and a language of international relations and trade. Uh, and so English is seen as like a prestigious language. And um, a lot of Malaysian Chinese, they would learn English at school. Um, and they would use it to when they, you know, when they need to talk to non um, non Malaysian people, and so it's a, it's seen as a language that's quite important. And uh, I guess what's uh, what's particularly interesting also is that nowadays the declared Chinese language unifying Chinese dialect in Malaysia is Mandarin, and so the younger generation can actually choose to go to a Malay um, and uh, a Chinese 
language school in Malaysia, which teaches the national curriculum in Malay, but also teaches Chinese language Mandarin classes. And so in those places, you get to learn, obviously, you, you know Malay, you'd, know, you'd learn English, and you'd also learn Mandarin. And if your family spoke a different dialect, you'd speak a different dialect. And that is why they can speak at least three to four different languages. And one thing that I've been thinking is that, you know, with the British coming over and essentially making Chinese people learn English and having living under the shadows of the majority Malay population, I'd imagine that the Chinese living in Malaysia since when they first arrived, even to now, have faced discrimination. And do you have particular examples of that? Or do you believe that the Malay Chinese have been discriminated? Um... I would say that they have had positive moments in their history and also negative moments. And I would say in terms of the negative, it's that obviously when they were living under the British, they were, I guess, they were never considered British subjects. They were considered colonial subjects. So obviously they were still considered second class compared to the British authorities. And after Malaysia gained independence, the ethnic Malays became the dominant political power in the country. Now, just for context, Malaysian Chinese constitute about 23% of the national population, and that amounts to about 6.7 million people. It used to be higher. It used to be closer to 30%, actually. But in the last few decades, there has been a brain drain um, of Malaysian Chinese um, to mostly Commonwealth countries such as Australia, UK, and New Zealand. I'm assuming happened because of discrimination? Uh, yes, yes. So um, par- partially because of discrimination. And so w- what happened was that um, after the, the Malay government um, uh, was established after independence, the government was dominated by ethnic Malays. Uh, now, they, they are over 50% of the population, so they are the majority population in the country. And they believed that during the colonial administration, the local Malays were, were the most economically disadvantaged through the British colonial project. Um, they were at the very bottom of the hierarchy, and that they, they saw that the Chinese and, and the Malaysian Indians attained economic wealth at the expense of, their, of, of the Malays. And they sought to embark on a project to sort of um, to reverse that, to flip it around. And uh, what that involved that involved numerous things. One, establishing Malay as a nation as a national language. Before that happened, most most Malaysian Chinese would never have known Chinese, no Malay. And secondly, uh, they also made a new econ- uh, what's called a the new economic policy which granted a lot of, uh, I guess, benefits to uh, ethnic Malays at the expense of the Chinese and Indian minorities. And how that sort of came about was there was a riot in Kuala Lumpur in uh, 1969. And uh, what happened around that time was that the uh, the government was dominated by ethnic Malays the, and uh, run, run by the United Malays National Organization, the UMNO. And the Chinese, the majority of the ethnic Malaysian Chinese, they had a party that was called the Democratic um, Action Party. And not all members of that party were ethnic Chinese, but there were a big number that were. 
And in the 1969 elections, the Democratic Action Party gained a lot of seats and they gained a lot of votes. And the United Malays National Organization thought that this would threaten their hold on power. And uh, what happened was there was a riot in Kuala Lumpur, which was at the time a predominantly Chinese, ethnically Chinese city. There was over 60% of that city was Chinese at the time. Um, and then uh, a lot of Malays, armed Malays came from um, rural regions into KL and started this riot. And this resulted in around 200 people, at least 200 people being killed and thousands of people being injured. And then after that, yeah, basically the government used this as an opportunity uh, to introduce this policy, the new economic policy, which basically, yeah, was to rectify these inequalities, which resulted in the riot. And part of that also resulted in a lot of public service positions being exclusively reserved for Malays. Yeah, regardless of you know China, um, minorities' position uh, and and merit, and also um, capped university entry places in Malaysia for minorities, and that also has led to why there's a lot of Malaysian Chinese studying abroad in Western country in universities in Western countries because there is a set limit to how many Malays uh, how many Malaysian Chinese can study at universities in their own country, even to this day, even to this day. Um, so yeah, if you get if you if you and a Malay person got the same mark, they would you might not even get into the university, and they might even let in a Malay person with a lower score than you. As in, as in, sorry, if a Malay Chinese person got a high mark, yes. Okay, just a disclaimer: we're not discrediting any local Malay people who actually got into university because they had good marks or they're good. We're just simply saying that it's discrimination for the Malay Chinese. Uh, who could have got in because of merit, but couldn't because of this policy. That's right. And the intention of the policy is to uh, is to lift more uh, ethnic Malays into, I guess, more more affluence and to, I guess, increase their standard of living, uh, which is a noble um, aim. But I suppose with any policy like this, it, it comes at a lo- cost. There will be losers, and the losers in this case and the cost are Malaysian Chinese. Okay, let's talk about something positive. Sure. Let's. I want to talk about clan houses. Because when you went to Malaysia and you came back, you showed me some really cool uh, pictures and also some brochures that you took or maybe stole. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you they were completely legal, legally obtained. Okay, you, you showed me a lot of legally obtained brochures from places that you visited in Malaysia. And it was really cool that you showed me one of, I think it was the Ku family uh, clan house brochure. So it was really interesting to read and I wanted to learn more about, you know, clan houses of the Malaysian Chinese people. So what were they and uh, where did that come from, I guess, from a cultural perspective? So uh, clan houses are a a component traditional Chinese culture, I'd say, for um, many, many generations. Clan houses were established by Chinese families back in China as well to serve as a meeting point and a gathering point for members of a Chinese family, aka clan, um, and also to venerate and worship that Chinese family's ancestors. And ancestor worship is a big part of Chinese culture because um, the main reason is that they worship the ancestors who have been able to provide what the family has today. It's, it's, a, it's a token of gratitude and to never forget where you came from. 
So with these clan houses, are they brought over by the families that come from China? Do they and they build them there as respect to their ancestors? Is that how how it works? So what's interesting is that uh, the early Chinese migrants and also the later Chinese migrants too, they established clan houses as a sort of yeah like a like a gathering point for the family in a foreign land. And what they would do is that for the families that were more affluent, they would build a clan house for their own family. Um, so you'd, you'd have like like you mentioned um, the Ku family, and then there would be also be one for like the Chia family, um, and so on and so forth. And what does that mean for the families that were less affluent? Well, in in Penang at least, uh, what some of the clans did was they actually banded together. So you might get someone from, uh, let's say, you know, the Chen family or the, or the Zhao family, and then they would band together and create a ancestral hall with pooled money uh, so that they can have a place where they can still venerate their ancestors. And that's it's very important for the family because that allows, I suppose, the family to always have a way of recording their history and their, their heritage. And also have a place where I guess they can meet in safety, uh, particularly because they are in a foreign, <laughs> in a in foreign, a foreign country. country. Yeah, that's right. Not to mention the fact that their earliest ancestors, who are venerated in these temples, are literally gods. Mm, that's right. That's right. Their ancestors are literally considered as as gods deserving of worship. So, to all listeners, if you're Chinese, the best part of being Chinese is. If you die, hopefully when you're very, very old, in hundreds of years' time, you'll literally become a god. So if you're not Chinese, think about becoming one because, <laughs> <laughs> because based on ancestral worship, you literally become a bloody god. <laughs> yep, and then your your great-grandson will get on his knee and pray in front of your portrait. That's pretty cool, I'd say. Um, not that I want to die now, but <laughs> I just want to say, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred years' time, me and Devo will be gods, so... Oh, I, I can't! I can't wait to to have a whole bunch of people. Um, yeah, just pray to my pray to my picture. And, pray to your picture and, and burn incense in burn, my face and uh, deliver rice and fruit and stuff to you. Yes, and <laughs> cook meat. Um, okay, well, so I thought the clan houses were heaps interesting, and you certainly did learn a lot from your from your trip to Malaysia. Um, uh, I would just say that it's very unique that the Malaysian Chinese have been able to preserve their culture their language and their heritage over hundreds of years living outside of China. I mean, uh, if you compare the Malaysian Chinese to other Chinese diasporas, let's say in, you know, the US, Australia, or let's say even in, even in Thailand, there was, I guess, a bigger societal push towards assimilating migrants into the local culture. You know, most all, Ch- all Thai Chinese were required to change their surnames to a Thai surname. And oftentimes, those Chinese diasporic communities, they lose their linguistic abilities over time because they're taught in the local language in those, in those countries. And I suppose because of that, uh, you know, you get third, fourth generation Chinese in those places that can't speak Chinese fluently. Whereas in Malaysia, what's very interesting is it's, you know, it's the only, it's the only country outside of Greater China with schools that, that um, you know, that dedicated to Chinese languages in high school and primary school. Uh, in addition to obviously the, the local language, and yeah, there is a very strong, I guess, um, yeah, effort to to keep Chinese 
language and culture alive. And yeah, that's very unique amongst the Chinese diaspora. And yeah, obviously a lot of Malaysian Chinese have become quite prominent on the in the global stage, like Michelle Michelle Yeo. Michelle Yeo. Um, obviously there's others like um Jimmy Ron- Chu. Jimmy Chu Jimmy, Jimmy- He's Malaysian Chinese. Jimmy Choo's from Penang. Oh, well, Ronnie Cheng as well, the comedian. Yes, Ronnie Cheng, yeah. And I, I love badminton, and uh, I'm a fan of Lee Chong Wei. Yeah, yeah, Lee, Lee Chong Wei is yeah, perhaps one of the best badminton players um, ever. Lin Dan would have something to say about that, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, that's, that's, a, that's a fight for another day. Yeah. I agree, and even looking at home... Like in Australia, depending on who you are and which family you come from, you know, you might not even preserve your ancestral culture at all. So mm. for the Malaysian Chinese to do that, it's, it is very impressive. Mm. Um, okay. In the interest of time, we're going to wrap up now. But before we go, Davo, you've really taught us a lot today about the Malaysian Chinese and their history over time. So if you were to do a quick summary of how the Malaysian Chinese identity has developed until now... How would you summarize that? I would summarize it as a community which migrated during economic hardships to a foreign land, persevered in those places, in unfamiliar territories, built a community and a life for themselves, uh, maintained strong uh, connection to their culture and heritage. I would say for many of them, they gained economic prosperity. And also, they're one of the most resilient communities I know because they, you know, they, they go, they've gone through so much in their history and yet they, they never give up and they, they have a very strong grit to survive wherever they go, whichever country they, they migrate to next. Big shout out to the Malaysian Chinese out there. Good work and keep it up. So, yeah, that brings an end to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. I want to thank Davo for coming on to the podcast to share his opinions and knowledge about the Malaysian Chinese. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. I'm glad I could um, contribute part of my, my knowledge on the subject, um, yeah, to, to inform, inform our listeners here. And I hope they walk away with a greater understanding and appreciation of this very resilient Chinese community. Um, but yeah, I think guys, if you can have a chance, go to Malaysia and explore because yeah, you'll be astounded by, um, yeah, what you, what you find there and do, do try some laksa, do, do try some chakwe tao. They are phenomenal dishes. They are. Oh, I concur to that. That's delicious. Mmm, yum. It's, I'm kind of mouthwatering now. Let's get some. Yeah, maybe we should just, just cut it now and just get some laksa and chakwe tao. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, we're going to go now. So thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Davo, again for coming on to the Bamboo History Podcast and enjoy the rest of your day and evening, everyone. And I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye bye. That was great. That was good, man. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Good yeah, job. Good yeah. 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 You still recording? No. Oh, okay, cool. Because it sounds still going. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's it. That's the end of the episode of the development of Malaysian Chinese identity. Huge thanks to Davo again for coming onto the show. I will definitely read more into the history of Malaysian Chinese and hopefully 
I'll do another episode in the future as well about this topic. If anyone wants to come onto my show to discuss a topic of interest, please contact me. I'll leave the details in the description box below. I would like to continue running episodes like this, where we just have candid conversations about history to spread knowledge. The caveat though, is if you want to come onto my show to talk about history, it needs to relate to Chinese or East Asian history. And yeah, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also follow us on Instagram. I'll leave all these details as well in the description box below. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.